God actually gives and gifts to his people. Um, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 9 gives us a little hint because that same word agathosune is actually used in this particular book. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 9 says this, the fruit of light is found in all that is good. That's the word good, uh, agathosune, good, just, and true. So Paul actually relates the idea of goodness to this concept or this metaphor or motif of light. You're going to kind of find that oftentimes the Bible uses these pictures or these metaphors to try to identify certain characteristic truths. So in this particular case, Paul's going to say light, this idea of purity and beauty, um, is also related to this concept of agathosune, good, the chief good, the summum bonum, this idea of the ultimate good is actually somehow related to this concept of light, purity. So the opposite would be something that's like inconsistent, something that's walking in darkness, uh, somebody who's like two-faced, somebody who's one thing one day, one, where, one place, and is somebody entirely different another place. Uh, it's the opposite of that. Uh, the second word that Paul is going to describe for us or use for us is this word faithfulness. It's the actual Greek word pistis. Um, in the New Testament, we use the word uh, piste, uh, the idea of, or uh, pisto, the idea of faith, having trust in God, um, having a confidence in God. Um, this word pistis can also be translated Faithfulness. So the difference between faith, which is something in which you believe in somebody, faithfulness carries this idea of durability, this concept that something can, has some sense of soundness to it. You can sit on it. You, it's reliable. If it's going to make a promise for something, you can pretty much bank on the fact that that promise is going to come to pass. So the word goodness, I would describe this way, morally consistent. So someone or something that's good is morally consistent. There's a consistency to it, not an inconsistency. Not one person one way, and then the next day, completely inconsistent with the way they were the day before. Uh, Goodness is moral consistency. Faithfulness is uh, moral reliability, meaning it can be totally trusted in. It's 100% dependable. When it's going to say something, when it's going to say it's going to do something, you can completely uh, bank on it. It's going to come to pass. So the one word that I would use to sort of interlink these two words together and really, it's the larger concept that we're going to be really focusing our attention on today. One of the reasons why we're going to you know, attempt this radical, ambitious move to take actual two words and spend our time together looking at two words rather than like one. And we'll actually do it within a hopefully decent time frame, right? So we'll hopefully get you guys out of here by three, promise. And it's, it's because these two words are actually interrelated. Some of you that are new, you're like, is he serious? It's like, kind of. Anyways, the point of the matter is that the word that I would kind of use to link these two together is the idea of integrity. The concept of integrity. That when we talk about someone being full of goodness or someone also being full of faithfulness, uh, someone who has moral consistency, someone who has moral reliability, what we're really talking about is somebody that has full of integrity. Their life is not two different lives. They're not acting one in, in particular, one particular way in one setting and then acting completely different in another setting. They're not one way with their friends and then when they get home in their family, they're an entirely different way. They're not one particular person, you know, telling nasty jokes or whatever at the office or at the workplace. And then when they go and hang out with the roommates or go to Bible study, they're all like, praise Jesus, you know. Uh, they're, not just, they're not two different people. They're one consistent person. Now we're going to look at this as well. This doesn't mean that you're not going to make 
mistakes. It doesn't mean that you're going to have moments where you're going to flare up and you're going to have inconsistencies. But what it does mean is that when you're inconsistent, one place, another place, your goal is to try to bring these two worlds together. So you're not living in two different worlds. So that you're not two different people or three different people or five different people, but you're one person. Now, the importance behind all of this, the reason why this is an important thing is because when we're talking about this, God himself is an integrous being. God is integral. God is one. It's one of the ideas when the Bible describes God as being one God. Even though God is three in person, Father, Son, and Spirit, there's no variance amongst them. I mean, Jesus is never fighting the system and resisting the Father, right? The Father's never like, no, Jesus, how about you go to the earth? Become a man, live in the trailer park, trailer park called the earth and do the best you can to survive. Jesus isn't like, really? No. Is there another plan I can go to? I mean, Jesus is like, all right, Father, I'll do it. And Jesus, when he gets to earth, you know, behind God's back, he's like, you know what, the Father sent me here, but this place stinks. I really don't want to do this. I don't really like you guys. This neighborhood is horrible. I'd rather move. I'd rather go to another planet. It's another beautiful one way out in, you know, some other nebula out there. But Ah, but you know what? I got to do what God tells me to do. But you know what? It really it's frustrating to constantly do what God tells me to do. It's not Jesus. He's always doing everything the Father tells him to do. There's a consistency about Jesus. There's an integration amongst them. They're never deceiving one another. So when God is going to tell us he wants us to be walking in integrity, he's not telling us that just simply to give us busy work. God's not like looking at us going, you know, you guys got a lot on your plate and you're trying to figure out how to survive, pay your bills, make sure food's on the table, get, you know, credits up so you can get graduated from school and get a job and buy a house. Why don't you add to your already very busy list of things, just be full of integrity, just because I said so. That's not why God does that. In fact, God would say, be a person of goodness, be a person of faithfulness and integrity because God would say, that's me. I'm full of integrity. Everything I do is good because I'm good. So what the Bible is going to tell us is that really the fruit of the Spirit are rooted in the very character and nature of God himself. So with that being said, I want to take a look at a couple different verses here today and try to really understand what this is all about. So why don't you turn real quick, hopefully you guys are already there, Galatians chapter 5, 22. I want to read this very quickly and then we're going to jump fast to 1 John chapter 1. Here's what it says. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and then the last two words, uh, goodness and faithfulness. So again, those are the two words we'll be taking a look at. Uh, Again, Paul doesn't spend a lot of time elaborating what goodness and faithfulness is in this particular context. There's other books in the New Testament that kind of elaborate or spend more time on this. But we've already seen so far that this concept of goodness is related, as Paul would say in Ephesians, to light. So light has some sort of connectedness to this idea of goodness and faithfulness. So with that being said, take a look at 1 John chapter 1. John's going to tell us a little bit more about this, and this is kind of the main passage we're going to be taking a look at. It says this in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie, we we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses, Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all of our sin. And if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we actually make him a liar and his word is not in us. So here's the big question. Really, what does it mean to be someone who is full of integrity? That's the big issue. That's the big deal that we're going to really try to understand. Because Paul again says, if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit's in you. If you're really a Christian, in other words, you will have goodness come out of your life. And you will also be someone that says things that you can be actually completely reliable on. In other words, when you say something, if people look at you and they're like, I don't know if I can believe this guy. He's always exaggerating. He's always stretching the truth. They might have good hopes, good ambitions, but the way they tell things, the stories by which they communicate, there's always sort of these like fun, playful ways of hyperbole, expanding things, stretching them out, but you never really know for sure if this person's actually telling the truth. So when they say they're going to be there, are they really going to be there, or are they just saying they're going to be there, and then I'm going to be left trying to figure out what to do, because they're totally unfaithful, unreliable, undependable. Um, if they're somebody that is full of integrity, that's the issue. How do we become people that are full of integrity? Now, with that being said, it's important to point out that one of the things we've been noticing uh, over this whole series in the book of Galatians is that there's basically two major ways by which we can try to convince ourselves we've changed. The first way is through religious oppression, meaning people coming in and telling us, if you really want to be righteous, if you really want to avoid sin, if you really want to be godly, here's what you got to do. In the Galatians case, it was these people from the outside saying, what you need to do is you need to abide by the law of Moses, particularly circumcision. What they were doing is they were taking the moral code of God, and they were basically making another type of law out of it and saying, if you really want to be a Christian, here's what you must do. Where Paul's writing them saying, no, that's not how God changes us. Really the way that God changes us is what God does is he gives us a new heart. And there's a radical difference between religion that basically imposes upon its moral restrictions and says, do this, be loving, be kind, because everybody hates grumpy people. Be loving, because nobody likes rude people, all right? Be full of peace, because everybody hates the person that's full of anxiety all the time. And people can make others manipulate it or manipulate people into those emotions to whereby you're like, oh my gosh, my pastor said I must be loving. I haven't been very loving. And so there's a way to cloak that whereby you put a smile on your face. We're all good at this. We're all good at faking love. But are you really loving in your heart? I mean, do you really truly love your enemies? Do you really truly love those people? Or is it just a smile on your face and another form of deception? See, all religion does is religion teaches us how to be like Pharisees. That's all it does. We learn how to put the smile on our face. We learn how to act a particular way. We learn how to uh, talk the right talk. We learn how to throw down the right types of words so that we can you know, adopt a new type of language, maybe Christianese, so we can say the right things, act the right way, wear the right clothing, all these other types of things. But internally, inwardly, you know, this is one of the biggest complaints a lot of times people have against the church. They're like, it's all full of hypocrites. Well, you know what the reality is? Some who claim to be Christians really aren't. That's the reality. The rest of us, yeah, we are hypocrites. And one of the best things about dealing with hypocrisy is just recognize 
That's all of us. But hypocrites never call themselves hypocrites. They always call themselves righteous. They always call themselves, look, we're doing it the right way. But hypocrisy is a problem. But what's even a greater problem is people who think they're Christians but really aren't. All they really have is an external form of religion over them that guilts them into being loving, that guilts them into doing kind things, that guilts them into acting as if they have some semblance of peacefulness in their life. But in reality, they're not changed inside. They're not a new person. They don't truly love people. This is always evidenced when things get difficult in people's lives. People just bail out. They become very bitter. They become full of spite, full of anger. It's why churches split. This is why people, you know, in relationships split. Because what's really happening is the true reality of what's going on inside your heart is coming to light. All that you had was a charade. So the point of the matter is this. There is a distinction between outward morality forced upon us by religion and true transformation that comes with inside of us because of trust and belief in the gospel. Does that make sense? We really want to have truly transformed hearts. So with that being said, how do we become people that are full of integrity? Well, the first thing that John's going to tell us is that one, it means that we got to be like God. I mean, we've got to start from here. We're going to start from the highest order. I mean, you're like, got to be like God? It's impossible. I know. It's absolutely impossible. This is why it takes divine help to be able to do this in the first place. It takes absolute God's help in order for us to even consider being people of full integrity. So it begins with God. Here's the way John's going to put it in John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. It says this, This is the message that we have heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What John's saying is that God is not 99% light, just 1% darkness. God is not saying that God is mostly good, once in a while loses his temper, gets really evil. He's saying that God is always good, always faithful, always light. God is not the way Eastern uh, religions would try to espouse that God's yin and yang. He's both good and evil, and it all depends upon what day you get him. It depends upon what type of reality is that you're living in right at that particular moment to determine, is God good, is God evil? Paul, you know, Paul, as well as John, are saying that, no, God is always good, all the time, in every situation, under every circumstance, all the time. That's who God is. There's no variance in him, no deception in him. There's no darkness in him. That's the way John's going to describe it. That's John's way of saying God is an integrated whole. Does that make sense? An integrated whole, always light, always good. Paul's going to say this a little bit later in Ephesians chapter 4.22. He says this in encouraging Christians. He says, put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Here's what Paul's saying is that, look, all of us, all of us. So here's one of the problems that we do as a church. One of the best ways to kind of find out if you are actually living for religion or if you've been humbled by the gospel is that if you're the type of person that's always looking at everybody out there and being like, ah, they're a bunch of hypocrites, man. Everybody's a hypocrite. They're all full of, or lack of integrity. Everybody around us is just all messed up, just gone. They're all going to hell. And that mentality, if you have this arrogant mentality, that's the way that you live, is a pretty good indication of the fact that you've never seen the darkness of your own soul. You're blinded to it. You know what that means? 
You're not whole. You've deceived yourself. You're not an integrated whole. You're not walking in integrity. You're two people. You're two people. The reality you, which you're not aware of, is darkness and evil. But the you, you, who you think you are, is righteous and good. You read your Bible. You pray all the time. You go to church. And you condemn everybody who doesn't. So here's what Paul's saying. If you really want to walk according to the gospel, you've got to accept the fact that you are all duplicitous, meaning you all live double lives, every last one of you. That's what it means to be fallen. Literally, means to be fallen. You've fallen from an idealistic standard that you once were created in the image to be, but that's not you anymore. You're fallen. You're divided. You're broken. You're lost. And Paul's going to say, Here's what the gospel is. It empowers you to lay that aside, to lay aside the deceitful desires that you have. In verse 23, he says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on a new self, recreated in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Get that? So here's Paul's way of identifying goodness of God, faithfulness of God, or the integrity of God, that God is righteous, that God is holy. And here's what the gospel is doing. It's taking you who are not holy, You are not good, and it's transforming you, not by imposing religious convictions on you and forcing you into a particular cultural, social, or religious mold, but it's changing you because God, who is good, has transformed you into being a new person. It's a new self, new heart. That's what God's doing in your life. And so, therefore, you're being actually transformed. So the chief goal for us as Christians is not be like, how can I be good? That's religion. That's a religious question. How can I get you good? The real question we should be struggling with is how can I be like God? Big difference. Because if all you say, how can I be good? Well, here's what you do. You act according to the standards of that church, of that culture, of that situation, of that day, of that age. But inside, you're still full of bitterness you still hold grudges, you still gripe, you still complain, you still wish death upon your enemies, you're not changed. You haven't been really transformed. But the gospel transforms us. That's what needs to happen. It's a true transformation of heart. And Paul's saying what we need is to be transformed by God. Not just become good people, but to be transformed by God. And then by being transformed by God, we begin to adopt the characteristics of God. God's good. God's faithful. So if you're somebody that can't keep your word, meaning you lie a lot, you deceive people, don't just look at the outside action and be like, you know what, I just got to start telling the truth more. Maybe. And that might actually help you in your job, might help you in school, might help you in your family, might help you in situations. It's definitely way better than being a liar. But the reality is, unless, unless you go even further to the root question, which is, why do you lie? What's fueling that lie? You will never change. Unless you understand the reason why perhaps you're lying, because you're actually believing a lie. You're believing a lie. The lie that you're believing basically comes to you and says, you don't need God. What you need is this whatever that's somewhere on the buffet line in front of you that says, if you have this, this will give you happiness. And so we begin to believe that. We're like, I need that. I must have that. And so you're willing to actually lie to get that. You're willing to break relationships with people who care for you and love you in order to obtain that. But in reality, 
you're not really dealing with the true issue that's at heart. You're just covering up for lies that are fueling everything you do. So it's not just a matter of like learning how to stop lying or learning how to tell the truth, how to improve yourself, how to better the way that you interrelate with other people. But the real issue that goes even further than that, how do you become like God? So what we see first and foremost, it means to be a person of integrity, it means we've got to be like God. The second thing it means that we've got to stop deceiving. There's two different ways in which we deceive. The first of which is we deceive ourselves and we deceive other people. And John actually touches on both of these. We've got to stop deceiving. The first of which, verse 6, it says this. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie. And we don't practice the truth. John gets very practical here. And he's like, look, if you claim to love God, claim to have a relationship with God, but in reality, you are walking in darkness. And this is the person, you know, maybe... It might be the girl that's like, I love my boyfriend. I refuse to break up with my boyfriend. I want to keep having sex with my boyfriend, but I still want to go to church. I still want to do all the types of things I have to do with Christianity and God, but I refuse to change because I hope someday that person will change. That's walking in darkness, hoping that God will somehow bless the darkness. And what John's actually trying to say is that, no, no, you're walking in darkness. God is, is not darkness. In order to change, you got to stop lying to yourself. you got to stop deceiving yourself because that self-deception is what's keeping you in the darkness, keeping you outside of relationship with God and really relationship with other people. You're living in a form of self-deception. Verse 80 says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. These are sometimes people that basically go on with their life and are like, I've not done anything wrong. I've conquered sin. I'm good. I don't sin anymore. Honestly, uh, there are movements throughout Christian history, oftentimes throughout like the Wesleyan movement, uh, this concept of perfect love. If you trust God, you get engaged with perfect love, then you can somehow conquer sin. Sin will no longer be an issue or problem for you. It's completely false, totally false notion. The way in which God helps us through our sin issues is that God pulls out the sting of sin, meaning the consequences of sin. As long as you're in this world, you will still suffer with sin. The best thing for you to do is stop deceiving yourself, telling yourself that you've arrived, that you've achieved, that you've gone varsity, that you're now somehow better than everybody else because you pray the way that you do, you read the Bibles the way that you do, and you study the Bible the way that you do. You have all these new techniques and ways by which you do it, and somehow, really, and now you can look at other people that still are trapped in sin, still doing the same things that they always have done, and you're, you've actually sinned the worst sin of all. You're arrogant. You're very prideful. It's the worst sin of all. That's the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. All right? So John's saying, don't live in deception. Don't say if you have no sin, because in reality, you're just living in more self-deception. Verse 10, he says, if we have not sinned, we make him a liar. This is the person that basically says, I don't really need Jesus. I don't need outside help. I set the standards of my own life. I follow these standards as best as I can. I do the very best that I can. I'm really not bad. This person typically looks at the worst person in culture and society. They literally find the dread. They, they turn on the 6 o'clock news. They find the worst guy in the entire news segment. And they're like, hm, I'm better than that. All right? But the reality is, if you really want to be accurate with that, look at Jesus. Compare yourself with Jesus, all right? You've sinned, trust me, you've sinned. 
if you're still not convinced, one of these days, perhaps you'll get married, all right? That is, if someone can put up with your arrogance, and one day, somebody, if they were to come to you and ask that person that you married, do they sin? Guaranteed answer will be yes. We all sin. But John's point is that if we say that we have no sin, we actually, again, we deceive ourselves. We live in this form of self-deception. See, sometimes we try to deceive ourselves in so many different ways. One of the things that we oftentimes do is we even say something like this, like, look, I'm always consumed by worrying. Worrying is always consuming me. The real issue that's at heart, rather than saying I'm consumed by worry, what you really need to say is I'm actually controlled by a lie. There's a lie somewhere at the bottom of my heart, something that I've trusted and something that I believe, and it all begins with distrust in God. I don't trust God to take care of me, to help me, to provide for me, to do what God's promised he would do. Therefore, I don't trust that. Rather than trusting God, now I'm literally in front of this world that there are so many different plausible options for me to take, so many plausible options for my life to go downhill, and now I'm left with all those decisions myself. i got to figure out a way to make those decisions happen. Therefore, that heaps all sorts of anxiety on me. When Jesus would simply say this, look, don't let your heart be full of anxiety. Trust your dad, your heavenly dad. He knows when a bird falls out of the sky. How much more does he know about you? You're his child. He created you in his image. Birds aren't in the image of God. God doesn't have feathers. But he created you in his image. All right? He loves you. He cares for you. And so therefore, trust in him. He knows how to take care of your life. So the real issue is that we oftentimes deceive ourselves. The second thing is that we've got to stop deceiving. We've got to stop deceiving others. Uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 7 says this in the book of 1 John. It says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. This is sort of a little bit inside out. And here's what I want to mean. Now, we've already looked at the idea that when John says light, what he's actually talking about is this concept of light is synonymous with or consistent with this idea of goodness or moral purity. Moral consistency. So God is light, therefore God is morally pure, morally consistent. And so therefore, if we walk in the light, as God's in the light, then we are also basically walking the same moral consistency and purity in which God is. And so the point that I think John's trying to convey is that when we walk in the light, as God's in the light, what's going to end up happening is that we will then have fellowship with one another. The flip side is that if we don't walk in the light as God is in the light, then we don't have fellowship with one another. So if you look at people in your life, relationships that should be solid, relationships that should be there, and you try to figure out why is there no relationship, why is there no connectedness, why are we always fighting, griping, arguing, bickering over every little minute detail of everything, never get along. I think what John's going to say is that somewhere is a deception, somewhere is a lie, somewhere is a bitterness, Somewhere within your heart is darkness. That's why there's no fellowship with one another. Do you know that in relationships, one of the number one thing that kills them is deception? It's true. If you've ever been in a relationship, maybe a boyfriend, girlfriend, or married, and you found out that your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend cheat on you, in all sorts of different ways, whether it be porn on the internet or actually had a relationship outside of your relationship, that absolutely not only destroys trust, and the reason why it destroys trust is because deception. It's deception. It's, the, it's, a, it's that sense of I'm living two lives. I'm one person to you 
in the setting, but outside of the setting where you're at, I'm an entirely different person. I act a different way, I think a different way, I do different things, but they're not consistent with who I am over here. And here's what the Bible's saying. The Bible's actually going to tell you that it takes an awful lot of control and energy and resources to keep these two worlds, four worlds, five of your worlds together. It's absolutely exhausting. And the way to come clean is to just confess these things, to recognize the deception that is so oftentimes fueling you. Can you imagine the energy that it goes into keeping all of these worlds separate and the guilt and the shame and the pain that goes along with all of these things. It keeps it all together. Can you imagine if all that was washed away and you can just be one whole person again? How that would radically change you as a human being, but how it would change the relationships that you have with other people? We are a mixed bag of contradictory passions and desires. It's our problem. Our desires, passions, our longings are always contradictory. On the one hand, we want to have good relationships with other people. But on the other hand, we realize that there's something over here that our heart's gone after, that we have fallen in love with, something that has taken our affections and we want it so bad. And so it's easy for us to begin to make compromises. It's easy for us to start being distracted. It's easy for us to try to figure out ways, how can we bring these two things together? But then we realize these two things can't come together. So we realize it takes a lot of energy, a lot of strength to keep these two worlds apart because we know they're not consistent with each other. That's a failure of integrity. And what God wants to try to do is to bring our lives back to just to one. Do you know, do you know I, I think to some degree this is what Jesus meant when he said, unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. I've never met a kid, two, three, four-year-old, who's duplicitous, double-minded. I mean, I've, I've met kids that are just a bunch of nut jobs, and they got a lot of energy, and they just run around the place. That's just instinctive, all right? But I've never met one that, like, is willfully living two lives, right? Sounds silly, right? Like, all right, unless it's like the little kid on Family Guy, right? He's got two lives. But all that aside, the point I'm trying to make is that people, Kids don't live two different lives. They just don't. There's a simplicity about them. Contradictions nonetheless, but a simplicity as well that comes and just says, at the end of the day, they just want dad or mom. And here's what Jesus is trying to say. Is that one of the reasons why we find ourselves with this lack of integrity is because we deceive ourselves. It means we've got to stop deceiving. Second or third thing boils down to this. It means that we've got to be able to speak truth. So one, what it means to live a life full of integrity. One, it means that we've got to be like God. Two, it means that we've got to stop deceiving ourselves, deceiving other people. Three, it means that we've got to speak the truth. Verse nine says this, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess, uh, homologia, um, we get the word homo, which means single or one. Logia is the idea of word. It, it literally means one word. Beautiful word. 
This means one word. If, if we say the same things, it means that God has a definition or a dictionary of terms for certain things. But the problem is that we don't have that same dictionary. We've modified the dictionary. We've edited it. We've changed it around. We've made it more PC. We've made it more palatable to our own culture. Maybe even more palatable to our own ears. Because really, to be quite frank with you, at the end of the day, some of the things that God calls sin, we don't like the way it sounds. It doesn't ring too well in our ears. It's very offensive to us. So therefore, we try to change it. Give me one of the most obvious examples of that. For example, you know, we think of like, if, if some guy, well, let me, let me go step back further. If I were to hang out with my wife, go out with her on a nice date, get really dressed up, and go do something really fun, go see a show or something like that together, that would actually be called an affair. All right? I'm with my wife, we're dressed up, we're going to something very special, it's going to be great. If, 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 a, if a boss takes his secretary, goes to Motel 6, that's not an affair, that's adultery. But you say, affair sounds nicer, adultery sounds offensive. The reason why it sounds offensive, because it is offensive. The reason why it sounds bad is because Hello? It, it is bad. It's very bad. But the problem is, is that we don't like the way it sounds, so we change it. Right? We don't like the word sin. It sounds so harsh, so bad. So we change the word from sin to just discretion or indiscretion. Like someone failed. And we soften it. We try to take the words and reduce them or change them. And what ends up happening is that we don't feel the blow of the way they impact God, and because they don't impact us the way they impact God, we don't feel offended by these things. And that's exactly what we want. We don't want to be offended by these things, so we change them. But the way to live a life of integrity is to stop being two people. On one hand, doing the thing that God says is a sin, and on the other hand, justifying it. Well, I work a lot of hours. I'm very busy. I deserve something. To bring those worlds together can only be brought together through this idea of being able to speak the truth by confessing our sins, to be able to call these things what they are, to call it rebellion if it's rebellion, to call it adultery if it's adultery, to call it fornication if it's fornication, to call it drunkenness if it's drunkenness. It's not just that you eat a little bit too much. It's called gluttony. If you're not fitting into your elastic waistband anymore, just call it what it is. It's gluttony. You are becoming a glutton. Confess that before God. Confess that before him. And when we begin to confess our sins to God, he tells us that God then is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to wash us, to cleanse us. For some of you, that's what you need more than anything. You need that. You feel filthy inside. You feel defiled inside. The reason why you feel filthy inside and defiled inside and why you try to cover it up and veil it and clothe it in fig leaves is because you're looking for some sort of way to just bring it into your life. But even though at the very deepest element of who you are, you know it's not consistent in your relationship with God. You know it will not help you in a relationship with the people that love you the most. You know the most important thing for you to be able to do is just simply to confess it before God. You know what God does? He washes us. Cleanses us. Purifies us. 
the idea of washing and cleansing, to me, takes me back, in my mind, to the birth of a child. And all just the elemental fluids that come out with a child. That, in a lot of ways, might be weird, but it also speaks of a purity, because all those things come together in the sense of washed and cleansed and pure. And what John's trying to say is that if we confess our sins, if we call it what it is, if we stop being duplicitous, if we stop being double-minded, if we stop being deceptive to ourselves and deceptive to other people around us and just simply confess the things that are distracting, destroying, ruining our hearts and our souls and our relationship with God and our relationships with other people, Jesus will do his part in washing and cleansing and forgiving us, renewing us, bringing back the vital purity that we so oftentimes really are hoping for and long for in our hearts. It's beautiful. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Paul's going to say this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Paul's whole point is that rather than just not being deceptive, let your mouth be one that speaks truth. Can you imagine if we were a society like that? I mean, one thing, if we just live in a society where everybody stopped being deceptive to each other, that'd be an interesting place to live. But can you imagine if it went to the next level where everybody was just start speaking truth? I mean, not like that movie, what, Liar, Liar, you know what I'm talking about? Not like that, not just like telling you what it is always the way you are, but I mean, in a sense of speaking honesty, speaking truth to people, speaking words that are wholesome, speaking words that are pure, that will build up each other, rather than just hold truth from other people and lie to other people and deceive other people and willfully and purposefully try to pull the wool over other people's eyes. But can you imagine if we lived in a society where people actually were kind with each other? That's what Paul's saying, is that you who live in this particular area of Ephesus, in this church in Ephesus, stop just deceiving people, but don't just stop right there. Go even further. Begin to speak truth to one another. Build up each other. That's where he's going. So the final thing I want to take a look at is really this issue, because really at the end of the day, we're really trying to understand how do we change how do we really get a heart that's transformed and changed? So again, first of all, what it means to be a person that walks in integrity. One, it means we've got to be like God. Two, it means that we've got to stop deceiving ourselves, deceiving other people. Three, it means that we've got to start speaking the truth. And finally, what it means is that we've got to trust God's solution to our deception and our darkness. Meaning God has a solution for this. And God's solution is not religion. God's solution is not just forcing you to be good. That's why I said earlier, the real issue is not, hey, how do I become good? The real issue is not, hey, how do I become, you know, a person of my word? That's not what this is about. The real issue is, how do I become like God? How do I really change this heart that's always prone towards deception, change this heart that's always sort of divided, always has divided desires? How do I bring about a singularity to it, an in in integration in my life together. So I'm not one person over here and another person over here, another one over there, but how do I bring all these worlds together in one world, one life, one person with one single desires that are Godward? How does that happen? The Bible's gonna tell us that God has a solution. Here's what I wanna wrap it up on. Is that really in the beginning, it always goes back to the very beginning with God, that God created Adam and Eve and he created Adam and Eve to walk in harmony, to walk in this beautiful, rhythmic relationship with God. There was peace. Do you know the word shalom? We get the word shalom. There's, a, there's another derivative of that word 
in the Hebrew, shalem. It's the idea of wholeness. One. Peace can also mean one. Wholeness. It's not just the absence of like war or wrath or rage. But the idea of peace is the idea of completeness, wholeness. One concept. That's where we can even get the idea of integrity. It's one. It's integrated. Not compartmentalized. Not divided. Not broken. But one singular life. And God's going to tell us that in the very beginning, Adam and Eve had peace with God. They were in the garden with God. It literally was a paradise that they had with God. There's one, there's peace, there's beauty, there's rhythm. Now ultimately what had happened, all this takes place for two whole chapters. You get to chapter three, everything goes down the tubes. This absolute beautiful rhythmic creation that God designed for man to walk in, to live in, to experience relation, relational beauty and pleasure with God and on a horizontal level, with, between man and his wife, now everything, everything is destroyed. Why? Because man was deceived. He believed a lie. It's divided. Divided. Integrity was crushed. And it brought upon itself these consequences. But in verse chapter 3, God comes on the scene and very immediately God says, here's the reality. What I want to do is you guys broke everything. It's destroyed. But I want to make a promise to you. My promise to you is that I will one day bring about a solution where I will crush the deceiver, the serpent that deceived you. I will crush him and I will bring restoration. And it will be done by my servant who will bring truth. Several hundred years later, God comes to Abraham, basically says the same promise. Abraham, through your seed, I will fulfill the promise that I made to Adam and Eve. He will come. He will be my servant. He will be a king. He will crush the deception and bring truth. Later, several hundred years, God comes to David, basically makes the exact same promise. By the time Jesus comes on the planet, we see Jesus living, working, walking, doing everything. Everything Jesus did was good. In everything Jesus did, you'll find it in his ministry. How many times, so many different references to which Jesus is going to say, look, everything, I'm here to do the Father's will. Or he will say, look, this is done to fulfill the scripture. Jesus is literally saying, everything I do is to be consistent with God himself, with God's word. Everything God said, I'm here to do. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm here to be faithful to the good words of God. To the point when Jesus is even taken out in the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. He's by himself, which is, by the way, the majority of times, if we're going to fall, when we're going to fall, it's when we're on a business trip, when we're far away from home, when we're all by ourselves, when nobody else is around, when it's late at night, it's just us and our computer, whatever. Those are the times when nobody is around. It's in the dark, when nobody's watching us, that we are most prone, most tempted to fall. Here's Jesus in the wilderness, tempted, not just by some like low-ranking demon, by the devil himself. If there was any time that Jesus could have, you know, maybe, maybe sinned and wanted to get away with it, perfect time. Out in the wilderness, no one's around there. No pit stops out there, no gas stations, just scorpions, that's about it. But he didn't. He didn't sin. Jesus was the exact same out there as he was in the garden, as he was with his disciples, as he was on the boat, as he was there in every place all around Galilee, everywhere Jesus was, he was always exactly the same. All the way to the point where Jesus would get arrested. 
there's at least two trials that Jesus finds himself confronted with. One is with this guy named Caiaphas. He's the chief of the religious leaders. He asks Jesus, who are you? What are you here to do? Jesus responds. He says, who am I? I'm a king, and I'm here to bring truth. Caiaphas says, then we're going to kill you. Later on, Jesus is taken in front of this guy named Pontius Pilate. Caiaphas asks him, he says, who are you, and what are you here to do? You know what Jesus says? The exact same thing. He knows what he's up against. If there was any time for him to change his story, it would have been somewhere in that interchange between Caiaphas and Pilate. Jesus was a man of integrity. Jesus came to take upon himself the consequences of our failure to be integrated beings, to take our deception, to take the one who deceived us. And God's solution is wrapped up in this larger reality that God set in motion a means whereby he can crush sin, deception, rebellion, badness, evil, and faithlessness without crushing his beings, without crushing his people. And the way that God did that was he laid upon Jesus himself the consequences of our faithlessness, the consequences of our evil, of our sin. God came into this world full of integrity. Jesus said all the way to the point, Father, I will be faithful to you. Summary of this is the reality. It is because Jesus was a man of integrity that you and I can be saved. He took upon himself your failure, my failure to be a person of integrity, took upon himself the consequences of that, and in turn created the means and the way whereby we can be people full of integrity, whereby we can truly be good, not externally, not just mere surface, not just merely a smile on our face, but truly good people that are based and rooted in God himself goodness truly faithful people that are faithful to God faithful to his word in the same way Jesus was faithful to God and faithful to his word not by mere externals not by mere fear because the pastor said if you don't live according to this you will be kicked out of the church but by absolute love for God because God loved you that's what the gospel is guys that's how we're changed to understand that God did this for you, to change you. We're gonna respond now, we're gonna sing, we're gonna worship, we'll partake of communion. And as we respond, we're gonna sing songs to God, sing songs of love to God for some of you. Some of your response to God first is gonna involve confession of sin. Because some of you realize there are areas in your life you've gotta confess before God. You've been hiding things, you've been covering up things, you've been making lies for things, you've been living two lives. You've been one person with another group of people but another person in front of other people and as a result of that, you're, you're living a lie and that lie is not only affecting your relationship with God, that is hindering your relationship with God but it's also affecting relationship on a horizontal level with other people. So for some of you, it begins with confession of your sin to God. It begins with you calling your sin what it is to God. And then secondly, it may also involve you going and seeking forgiveness 
from people that you've wounded and that you've lied to. That's why Paul would say, guys, stop deceiving each other. Instead, speak truth to one another. I think first and foremost, the truth that Paul has in mind is us being truthful about our own issues with other people. To say, look, I've been bitter with you. Yeah, I know I've had a smile. I know I've played a game. I've acted like I really liked you. But honestly, I've hated you. I've been very bitter with you. It's being able to confess those things. God is light. In him is no darkness. To be like God, to be changed by God, is to be a person that steps out of the shadows and steps into the light. And says, I'm willing to be seen. I have nothing to hide. Nothing to hide. Our biggest fear is that if I reveal to God who I really am, he won't accept me. Guys, let me be really honest with you. Do you really, truly think God know, doesn't know already what you're doing? Do you really think that? God knows. He knows everything. There's nothing that's hidden from God. Nothing that's hidden from God. He already knows what it is that you're doing. But that's the beauty of what confession is, is it's you saying the same thing that God has already said about it, laying it bare before him, asking God to wash you and cleanse you. If you're a Christian here, I encourage you to partake of communion. It's a way for you to remember that because Jesus, the one integrated whole, became broken. His body was broken, literally broken for you and I. It was broken so that you and I, who are broken, fragmented, two, three, four, five different people can be made whole. One, integrated, being with God. You guys, God loves you. He loves you. And he demonstrated his love on the cross for you. But he also demonstrated the severity of his wrath against our deception and our lies in which we believe. And the provision the solution that God provided to our sin was to crush his son who bore our sin so that you who typically, regularly, all of us who bear our own sin wouldn't have to be crushed and die with our sin. He created the means, provided the solution whereby sin can be judged without God judging us. That's how much he loves you. God, I just pray right now that you would just help our hearts to be laid open and bare before you. That we would call sin what it is, lay it bare. That we would just leave it at the altar. We confess all that we are before you and allow ourselves to be vulnerable and open before you. Knowing that, God, really at the end of the day, you love us. You care for us. As we partake of communion here today, God, I pray as well that you would help us just to really understand and remember. Be reminded of the fact that because Jesus' body was broken for us are broken people us who are broken can be made whole and our relationships which are broken or on the verge of being broken can be made whole it's all because of Jesus all because of the cross God we were just we just recognize we all we all need change God if we're honest with ourselves we know on the one hand all of us we deal with this this is the world we live in this is the reality that we find ourselves in that we tend to be two three four different people because we're we have all these differing 
contradictory passions and desires competing for dominance in our heart. And yet, God, at the same time, we know that's really no way to live. We know it's not good to live like that. We know there's consequences to that type of life. But, God, we don't know how to get out of it. Religion comes along and offers us rules and morality to change, but it doesn't change us. It just goes to a shallow depth and doesn't really do anything. We're never really changed. We don't love people more. We're, we're not full of more joy. We just suppress joy. God, what we really need is change. We need the gospel to transform us, to break through, to unveil areas of darkness and sin and wickedness in our hearts. And God, we, we need your strength, your ability to be able to say the same things about sin that you say about these things. Because God, at the end of the day, when that happens, when we're changed, then we become new people. And new people begin to change this world around us. We change our relationships. We change people that we were once at enmity with. Now, God, we seek to live peaceably with people. People that we would have never even considered loving or serving or giving money towards because they're a different race or a different religion or a different ethnicity. Now, we suddenly want to love them and serve them and help them. We want to go to the people that are marginalized and broken and hurting because, God, that was us. We see ourselves in all of these elements of brokenness and defilement. And we see how you lovingly reach down because of the faithfulness that you had to your Father's will, and because of your goodness, the integrity of your life, Jesus, you saved us, who are broken, so that we can be whole. God, help us now to go out and live the gospel, to take it everywhere you call us to go. God, that we'd be like hundreds of missionaries traveling the Central Coast, going into different workplaces, different neighborhoods, different apartment complexes and just living the gospel in a way that makes Jesus look beautiful. And somehow letting the light shine and reveal religion for what it really is. It's just a bunch of makeup on a corpse. It's broken, sickening, it's repulsive. So Jesus, we want true life that comes from you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, um, love you guys. And quick question for you. Where are we going to be next week? All right, good job. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. All right, listen, you guys, we've got a bunch of flyers that are up front here and at either of the doors. Why don't you grab some? Um, if you guys own a business, if you're able to, maybe put some on there. If you work at a place that they might let you do that, hand some out, invite some friends. It'd be a great way to see the gospel reach a lot of lost people. Love you guys. See you next week.